Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 66 of Hack to Start. This episode features Martin Ringland, the co-founder of Envite. Tyler and I wanted to invite Martin onto the show to share his amazing story and insights as an entrepreneur and designer. Martin is an award-winning product designer focused on marketing and business development. He's launched his own agencies and startups, one of them being acquired by Twitter, where he joined as their first design manager. Martin has extensive experience building and managing creative teams, driving product while continuing to push pixels and committing code. Today, Martin is the founder of Invite, a seed stage technology startup. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Martin. Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start off by getting to know a bit more about you. Where are you from? What did you study? And how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, actually a military brat. So my dad was in, an officer in the Navy. So we moved around every three to four years. So I'm not really from anywhere. But I always, always lived uh, stateside in the United States. So um, born in Seattle, but lived everywhere from Boston to Florida. And I ended up going to University of Maryland undergrad and had no idea that I even wanted to go to college, had no idea what I wanted to study. And I just had the fortune to take an entrepreneurship class there, which was my first introduction to entrepreneurship. I think I, like probably a lot of designers or people getting into the web at that time, back in like circa 2000, 2002, um, I'd, I'd been doing a lot of freelance. Um, you know, it, it was very lucrative if you knew how to code and design back then. So I just kind of got thrusted in to the freelance world where people would pay you, you know, 500 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, anything to, to design and code. And you just slowly but surely kind of learn the basics of dealing with customers and clients and invoicing and proposals. So um, over, I'd say a lot of trial and error, pretty young in my, my, my career life, uh, kind of getting thrusted into it. And that was kind of the foray into it all. So at the beginning of your career, you were a design consultant, working, on, working with some really amazing companies like Apple, Oracle, Stuffable, and many others. So what was that experience like? Yeah, so I had always had a day job, which was being a designer. So right out of school, I go to Discovery Channel, which was an you know, amazing experience. But like I said, the, the, the freelance opportunities were just um, there were just a plethora of them. So it was an amazing opportunity to start working um, for all sorts of different customers, not just the people that I, you know, were paying me a W-2. So, I, and so nights and weekends, you know, I had this chance to start working, you know, in the beginning, just people that were local, that wanted, you know, small businesses or, um, you know, had some, some idea for a startup where, you know, there was just an idea. So, you know, how could I help them with a pitch deck or with a, um, a mock-up or early early product cycling, so you know I end up learning a lot of stuff there in terms of you know how to put together good pitch decks or you know the good and bad of of, of products. I've seen a lot of startups fail, so a lot of them succeed, and you know I I help design both of those sides. So 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 a lot of lot of learning experiences, and then for me um, it was really just about 
connecting the dots in terms of where I saw those early customers going and um, where I saw the trends in the internet go. And I just, I think on some level, I just happened to be very lucky in that I was always on the right side of, of the trend at that time. And so, you know, in the very beginning, I I decided I was going to learn CSS. And right now, if I say that, it's just like, it's an obvious people that know front end technology is probably rolling their eyes. But, you know, <laughs> circa 2000 to 2002, CSS is um, it's a it, it's a trait, but it, it's not a fundamental like foundation to building websites or web technology as it is today. And you, you don't have the power of things you can do with CSS three, CSS four, and animations and transitions. And so, to to really be building with CSS for layout in two thousand two is, is this this monument not only a monumental thought, but there's just very few people in the world who one are doing it, but two know how to do it and do it well and and, and can do it for. IE 5.2 on the Mac and IE 6 and, you know, cross-browser. So it, it, it lets me kind of explode my freelance world, which um, ultimately lets me get into the doors of just slowly but surely bigger and bigger companies with bigger and bigger opportunities. And I get to a point where I'm just an East Coast guy, but all my, all my clients, everyone I'm working with are, are West Coast, the Oracles, the Apples, the Mashables of the world. Um, but people like Mashable, you know, I, I love that story because, you know, when we first worked with Mashable, it was, it was legitimately just a blog. And it was, it was pre-Twitter pre, pre taking off and pre, I don't even think the word social media had been coined yet. And so for Mashable, it was, it was just a blog and it was, you know, one guy's blog who had contributors to it. And, but it, but it's getting millions of, of monthly unique. So it's a pretty uh, popular blog about technology. But Pete Cashmore wants it to go to the next level. And this is before, you know, again, today we'd roll our eyes, right? We look at the Huffington Post and um, BuzzFeed and TechCrunch and, you know, blogs that have become publications are a dime a dozen now. But in that time, you know, it was a pretty rare thing. There were only three or four that were, were even on the, on the brink of it. And we, I happened to get connected um, to a guy named Matt Marshall who was building um, a site called VentureBeat that, are, that had been out there. And it's probably one of the first predecessors to a, a Mashable and a TechCrunch. And VentureBeat wanted a redesign, and they wanted more of a publication feel. So um, we got the opportunity, me and my, my partner Alex, uh, to, to do that. And we, he didn't have a lot of money because, again, it's a blog. And you know, web advertising um, is not only not a big thing, but, but not super huge on blogs. Um, but they, he makes enough to pay his staff and himself, but, but not enough to buy a $20,000, $50,000, $100,000 sort of big, gigantic redesign. So he's got you know a few thousand dollars. And so we kind of look at it. And at this point, we're a little more further along in our careers and, and we're charging a little bit more. But we saw in him an opportunity. We knew that this is where things were going. This is you know, from all the clients we'd seen, from everything we're hearing about, reading about, like, this, is, this is the future. And so we go, we take them. And with, with little to no money, we have exactly 14 days to pull off this enormous redesign. We have to design it, we have to architect it, we have to design it, we have to develop it, we have to integrate it, and we have to put it into WordPress at that time and, and launch it all in 14 days. And wow. um, it was three of us, and it, it was exhausting. And we did it, and we went above and beyond, even though everyone on the team was just questioning the business logic. Why? You know, we're, we're, mm -hmm. we're going to lose money on this, right? We are, we're actually losing money on this. And, and my, my stance was... This was our first customer in Silicon Valley, and they're doing something novel. And if we push it over the top with high-quality work, people will know. People will want to know how that got done. How did it get done so fast and so well? And they're going to seek it out. And, and I, it, was just a, it was just a naive belief 
that we put it out there and you do good work and someone will find you. And we put it out there. And what we didn't realize was that all of the guys in that space watch each other and follow each other so intimately. So the, the Mashables, um, you know, they want to innovate, but they also want to watch what TechCrunch is doing. And TechCrunch wants to innovate, but they want to watch what Mashables is doing. So we put out VentureBeat and immediately they all look. And immediately um, a Mashable says, we want that, but better. So they call us. And so then we end up getting Mashable. And then once we got VentureBee and Mashable, it really exploded in terms of it really let us build a, an entire agency around this, this model because we ended up getting big publications like the Washington Post and C-SPAN and Kiplinger. And so more and more came on. And then at that same time, actually, when we did the Mashable redesign, which is just only a few months after the VentureBeat redesign, um, another thing was starting to trend. People, the iPhone had just come out. And, and what was really important was not only did the iPhone come out, but um, the next iteration of the iPhone is about to release. And there's this crazy thing called an app store and there's an SDK. And all of a sudden you can add apps. And we had this crazy idea because the iPhone has always touted the New York Times app since its inception and that you could, not, not that there wasn't a New York Times app and you could just go mobile web, right? You wouldn't need it. But we had this crazy idea is what if a publication had an app? And so Mashable is actually one of the first publications to have a native app when the SDK gets released. And we build it for them and we build it for them for free because we know, because one, they didn't think that they wanted it, right? All, all traffic's mm -hmm. web traffic, Google SEO is the, the name of the game, but we build it them for free because we know that if we over-design it and we make it beautiful and we, we make the uh, interactions sleek and, and sophisticated and just take it down to its bare minimum, like simplicity, and make people fall in love with this app, um, and, may, and really, on the design side, make it look like no other app. So you know, it's not going to have that default sort of iOS look and feel that a lot of apps had in the very beginning because uh, they were really just using Apple's sort of um, standard UI kit that the world would notice and, and it worked out and then so we end up transitioning from um what was originally just like a css shop to kind of like a cms shop to eventually like a mobile shop and then we just you know we, we just kept following that pattern time and time again that's incredible it sounds like a crazy exciting time and and just listening to you talk about it it's getting me antsy like this is awesome <laughs> yeah it was fun and now it's like i mean it's more fun to tell the stories now because it it, it sounds like the way i'm articulating it that it all happens you know within a few months but oh, the reality sure. is this is over like a half decade and you know we're watching it happen very slowly but you know in retrospect yeah it feels like it all happened you know within a flash that's awesome. So after your time as a, as a freelance design consultant, you actually ended up founding your own agency called uh, Include. So what was Include and what really motivated you to start it? You know, in the very beginning, I, I, I happened to have this you know, rare skill set. You know, it wasn't just rare to me, but, but, not, but it, was, it was very much the, the, the not norm to be a designer and a front-end developer. So I, I have to do those two things. There's you know, a handful of people doing it. And so it, it, it affords me the opportunity to work with really cool clients, to, to be able to start a company like this, and, and all kind of based on just, you know, at that time, that's kind of what they called the unicorn at the, at the time, even though I know we're all sick of that, that term. But um, so what we looked at was... I never really looked at starting my own company. I kind of always thought because I was getting more and more interesting clients and I was getting better and better paying jobs that eventually I was just going to like put my feet up. I was going to become like the vice president of design at like Bank of America or something. That, that was my full like career aspiration at some point. You know, I wanted to get like paid like $125,000 and you know, that, that was going to be it. And that's all I would ever do. And because um, it just seemed easy. And then I'd go like, you know, get married and have a bunch of kids and just go move in the suburbs. I, I don't know why I just thought like that, that, that is, that maybe it's just the life that like my dad lived and I was supposed to live it too. But um, one day my business partner, Alex, just jokingly says to me, I, I am before we start a company, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about like starting an agency. And I just kind of laughed and was like, yeah, right. And he's like, no, no, no I'm serious. I want to do it. And he's like, all right, well, 
I'll tell you what, like when you come back, why don't we just start it? He goes, and he just writes LOL and then he signs off. And then when he came back from a uh, holiday that Christmas, he saw my blog post that I had quit my job and that I'd go to start something new. And so he just, the first IM back to me, uh, Instant Messenger was, um, I guess we're doing this. And so I was like, yeah, we're in, You're, you better do it. So it took him three months to eventually quit his job because he was getting paid a lot more than I. So it was a little bit harder for him to quit. But um, eventually he does. And then the two of us just go off and basically two guys, two laptops, and you know, just start taking on the world one client at a time. And then um, you know, we, we get lucky. We land a big one and a big one and a big one. And so we hire our first employee and then our second and our third. Then we get our first space and our second space and our third space. And then you know, next thing we know, you know, we have this nice little team size of 12, you know, which isn't the biggest company in the world. But you know, we were doing really big work, making you know, really good money and um, having a really good, good company. And so we kind of, that, that's kind of the trajectory that we took. That's awesome. And so one of your main focuses there on in, in that startup, that agency was was really to build sort of the business development and growth side. So what was that experience like for you then coming, you know, with the background of experiences that you had before, but now applying it to yourself? And, and what tactics did you really use to kind of get the word out there? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, and this one's really hard because I get a lot of people who ask me uh, that are want to start a company of any kind and, you know, want advice. And, and the reality is that the advice that I'm going to give is it's not for everybody. It's it's probably more um, uh, not common than it, than it is that, that people are going to be able to follow it because because I, th I think sometimes people just want the easy answer. It's like oh yeah, if you just do these three steps, like you're going to be successful. And, and I think everyone's got to find what works for them. And what we did, Alex and I, is we didn't we didn't really know anything about business. You know, we we, we had freelanced and we had done so successfully. And at that time, we were probably making more in freelance than we were in our day jobs. So our day job plus freelance combined was you know an exorbitant amount of money. But when we started our own company, you know, we we didn't know how we we had no money, zero dollars. So you know, my goal was let's just try to make as much as we were getting paid at our full time job, which actually means that we're going to get paid half that we used to get paid because before we had a full-time job plus freelance. So now we're just getting a full-time job. Uh, but that's how we would determine success, right? It's like, hey, we just need to make X, X amount of money a year. And if we can do that, then we're doing something right. And if we can't do that, we, this, we're probably not the guys to do this. And so we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything about clients or you know, uh, billing or taxes or you know, business 101, how to form an LLC or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but we took the approach of we didn't care about that. We didn't care about business plans. We didn't care about your traditional like logic in terms of starting a company. All the responsible things you should do, we just said, you know, screw it, basically. We said, let's do a different approach. Let's imagine that we're going to start a company the way that we code. And, and, and most of us won't admit this, but you know, the way that we actually code is if I want to build something, what do I do? I'm going to go on the internet. I'm going to find somebody who built something very similar to it. I'm going to view source. I'm going to see how they did it. And then I'm going to slowly reverse engineer that until I get the thing that I'm looking for that's a little bit different than that original thing, right? And, and so this is, this is most of us how, how we code. If you can't figure out something in JavaScript, you're going to go and you're going to scour the internet until you find somebody that had already done it. And then you're going to figure out how they did it. And then you'll have thus learned, right? So we thought, wouldn't it be a crazy idea if we built a company the way that we code? And so that's what we did. We scoured the internet. We looked for companies who we kind of aspired to be like but wanted to be a little bit differently. And we said, all the things that they do, let's ignore them because they're doing them consecutively. So let's ignore that fact that they make money. Let's ignore the fact that they find clients. Let's ignore the fact that they hire employees and they have office space and all these little things that we think are necessary to a business like customers and profit. And we said, let's just ignore it. Let's look at all the things that they're, cons that they're consistently not doing. 
and, and, and that we think is flawed. And so we, we start making a list of all these things that they're not doing. And, and there's really just one that we can find that, they're not, that, they, that they've all almost like, it's almost like they made a pact that they're not going to do this. And the thing that we found was they can't keep good talent. They can hire it, they can find it, but they can't keep it. And it seemed like we were in an era for the first time where people weren't staying at jobs for more than five years. Right now, again, we're going to roll our eyes and say, like, oh, yeah, you know, the average talent probably only lasts one or two years at a company and then they move on. But at that time, that was a pretty, pretty um, rare, rare thing to leave a job, you know, pre five years. You kind of have like this stain on your resume. But we found that a lot of the people who we wanted to work with, we looked at their LinkedIn's and they were bouncing between agencies every less than a year, you know, six months, 12 months. And we wondered why. And then we started to look at our own resumes and kind of realized we were doing the same thing. And then we thought, okay, well, why, why are like, are we not happy? Do we have big egos? Um, are we money hungry? You know, what is it that makes us so kind of unemployable on our side? And um, we realized that it was when we actually answered the question ourselves is that we were never really given good environments to do our work. We, we, we were getting burnt out. We were kind of bored. Um, we were losing interest quickly. We would, we would join up with companies who wanted us to take on really big redesigns and really big projects. But you know the reality is those things get done in nine to 12 months. And when it's over, you're kind of just stuck like maintaining and working at a company where there's no real big fun project. And then you end up you know, looking for the next big fun project and you end up leaving. And so we thought, well, what if we could just solve that problem? What if we could make a place where great talent could do great work. And if we did those two things, right, if we found great talent and we create an environment where great talent could do great work, somehow that has to make money. I don't know how, I don't know why, but like if it doesn't, I don't even want to be in this industry anymore. So we thought, let's just do that. So, so we, we put all of our efforts into just creating an environment where we could do our best work. And what we found was we didn't even have to worry about the number one thing that most agencies worry about, which, which isn't revenue. It's actually like recruiting. It's getting talent. Because we got to a point where we created an environment where we didn't have to go find great talent. The, the environment was so great that the talent started to find us. So we ended up really flipping the switch and in, in saying, you know, hey, you, you, you can do really good work. And we ended up keeping people longer than most. You're never going to keep anybody forever. You know, if you were going to work with me for 10 years, I'd, I'd kind of question your judgment. You should, you know, because you're, you're, the more cool stuff we put out there, you're going to get approached by the Googles and the Facebooks of the world or, you know, bigger agencies with bigger pocketbooks. And, and you know, you should go and explore and you know, see what else is out there. But um, we keep people longer than everybody else, you know, three to four years on average. And, um, and they get approached and they tell us about it. They're they almost laughing like, oh, yeah, you're another recruiter from Google is trying to get me to come over. And you know, they're just not interested because they don't want to leave because they really like where they're at. And so um, we notice that people work harder. They work faster. The collaboration is increased. Like all the things that you really should want in a company um, that nobody else really kind of mentions um, ends up happening just naturally and organically. And so that ended up becoming the magic sauce. And that, that became you know, everything that we, we worked towards. So that's interesting that you bring that up. So what's your take on the agency business model? Do you think it's broken given sort of your perspective about how you approach, you know, founding yours from a completely different angle? Yeah, it's broken in that it doesn't feel to me like it, it's evolved. And we had this conversation before before the acquisition occurred where, um, you know, we always try to stay on the forefront of things. So, you know, in the beginning, it was, okay, you know, tableless tableless layout is out, table-based layout is out, CSS layout is in. So like the, that, that's a thing. That's a trend. That, that's something that you, know, you, can, you can build a business around. Um, but that only lasts for so long. So you have to – I live under the world where you have to be the one that constantly puts yourself out of business. So if you're, not, if you're not constantly thinking of ways of putting yourself out of business, somebody else eventually is going to, and then that's how you actually go out of business. So you know, if, if we build an agency where our key differentiator is that we do CSS-based layout – 
again, in 2015, that's not a very, you know, marketable asset. If you say you're a web designer and you don't have that as a skill, like, you know, that's a laughable offense. Um, so, so we know that that's going to be put out of business. And then we think, you know, okay, well, you know, what is next? And at that time, you know, using, uh, blog platforms or quote unquote like open source CMSs as um, as really powerful content management systems for big sites that can handle you know tens of millions of monthly uniques and lots of traffic at one time that was a new revolutionary area so WordPress and Drupal and, and, and um, Expression Engine all for the first time became these really powerful platforms so we said okay well we're going to be those guys who can take these platforms and um, really transform them and so we became and that was in the era of CMSs so we were ahead of that trend and then we, we, we noticed that mobile was a big trend so we got ahead of mobile web and then we got ahead of mobile apps and then um, really transitioning kind of pulling full circle back getting back into CSS3 back into CSS4 using, you know, into the world of SVG where we're really kind of battling this world where JavaScript's now adopted, but we want to kind of use it less than we have before, really thinking about interactions and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, as that stuff started to happen, um, and we, we were doing a lot of stuff, uh, we found that we were doing a lot of product work. And then we started to see the trend was going to go there. But something really shifted at that moment. The second the product became the trend, companies stopped calling agencies and started acquiring them. And then you had this big shift were no longer were the agencies being hired, they were being bought. And then that shift fundamentally disrupted, I believe, the the web creative innovation industry as we know it, because um, it wasn't it for the first time it wasn't able to evolve as quickly as it always had because there was a there's an immediate stopgap. All the talented groups that were putting out the stuff that inspired us, that drove us, that made us go faster, that you know really was the muse for creative inspiration, all of a sudden just disappeared, right? Like 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 um, all the all these big groups, you know, out of Miami and San Francisco and DC and New York, they just they just start disappearing and then they go to work at places like Facebook or Twitter or Google and you don't hear from them for a couple of years until eventually one of them leaves, goes and starts something else and then boom, you're inspired again. So we we lost this amazing amount of like public talent that went out there. But it did get put back into the products that we use. We just it wasn't in the same way that it had always been, where, where there was these because um, for a long time there we just had like a tremendous amount of inspiration and um, experimentation going on, and we're starting to see it come back, but not in the form of the agency. It's coming back in the freelancer and the independent. So we're seeing really cool experimentations on CodePen. We're seeing really great people pushing design on Dribble, but. Um, but before those two things existed, the, the place where you were really getting that was coming out of the agencies, and, and we just don't see that anymore. Uh, and a lot of the agencies I know are struggling today, and they're blaming things like Squarespace, but um, I just think there's a shift in like who the customer is. You know, I don't think the mom-and-pop small business customer is really the key customer like it used to be, uh, just because the, the tools out there to make your own website and make it really beautiful and unique. Again, that's not a differentiator. It used to be if you could make beautiful, unique stuff, that was a differentiator, but now that's getting harder because these templates, not only are there just a plethora of them out there, but they're, they're pretty easy to customize now, kind of make them your own. So if you were to start over again, like right now, uh, or, you know, if anyone else wants to start their own design agency, what advice would you give them? Yeah. So I mean, the first thing is always going to be, well, there's, there's two parts of that question, right? Like what advice would I give to you? And then what would I do myself? So the advice I'm going to give to you is you've got to figure out what is your thing, right? You've got to have something that you're really good at. And that makes you different, and you got to do that really well, and you got to be very passionate about that. And so, when you find that, go and go a million miles an hour. But you got to realize that there, I can't think of any situation in which in which you describe whatever that thing is, and it's not obsolete in eighteen to twenty four months. So, if you don't have the ability to constantly have a new one of those things that you're chasing and you're passionate about, um, it's going to be a struggle for you because you're going you're gonna to have a really great first year. 
if if the stars align and the thing that you love and you're passionate about and you're really good at just happen to be the exact same thing that the world wants at this moment, right? But that those alignments, like they're going to move and they're going to shift and it's going to be destructive for you when all of a sudden you don't understand why you were really successful 12 months ago, but you're really struggling for work today. And you're going to blame something. You're going to blame Squarespace or whatever it is. And it's not going to be a fair because um, what really changed was you because you didn't change and the rest of the world was evolving faster than you were. And so um, that I think is the hardest part about being in web because web just evolves so quick. It's much harder than, you know, say graphic design where you, you can have an aesthetic, you can have a style and you can sort of manipulate that style around different mediums or different clients or different projects. But the, the core medium itself isn't fundamentally changing underneath of you every single day. There isn't some new platform or some new device or some new resolution or some, you know, uh, different way to, 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 to build what it is uh, you're creating like there used to be. And then for me, if I were to start it all over again, well, so, you know, I, I get the opportunity to do so um, and, I, you know, decide, hey, you know, the world, the world is going towards product, you know, I've got a lot of big ideas, like a lot of us do. And um, I've, I know some people who are really talented. So why don't I just try to do it over again? But this time, instead of doing an agency, I'm going to do a product company. Let me let me let me throw that out there. But you know, if the goal is really to like start up another agency, um, you know, I'm always going to go back to what I know. And that's going to be talent first, which is hard, because when you're starting something new, it's hard to get people to follow you when there's no customers and no revenue. So I think, um, you know, find, I always want to find somebody else to, to, to do the ride with me, not because I have to, because it's just the only, well, it's the only way I know how. And so I find other really talented, passionate people who um, are willing to, to jump off a cliff with me. That's some really great advice. So five years later, Include was acquired by Twitter, where you became the first design manager. What was it like working at Twitter in the early days? Yeah, so in, well, it's crazy too because um, in some sense it was the early days. But if you ask people at Twitter, like you know, I was there pretty late. So when we get there, we are um, we break a thousand employees, our, our our little group, and so um, it's a pretty big company. It's still pre-IPO. They're still at the original Twitter office, but um, I think like a week or two weeks later, they do move into Tenth and Market, which is their new big office. So things start to change. Um, you know. Nine months later, they IPO, um, so it, it becomes a big, big company really fast. So, like, I'm there for you know the original days of Twitter for like two weeks. So it, it, it's it's a big it's a big shift. Um, it was exciting. Um, it's one of those things where I, I think a lot of the companies that I've worked for I can describe this way, but like one of the most fascinating and frustrating experiences of your lives because it moves so quickly and there's so many talented and passionate people there that um, there can be. A lot of energy and there can be a lot of conflict at the same I mean, if you kind of think of like what is energy right it, it is mostly just conflict but um, you know is it positive or negative and, and I think in you know really creative environments it's always some combination it always needs to be too but um, but it's just it's fascinating to watch it uh, from the inside and you know in, in watching them debate things like Jack Dorsey just you know just took the the, the helm of CEO uh, uh, recently yesterday mm -hmm. and um, or I guess it was this morning and but I remember when we were there, you know, there was a huge debate, and it wasn't that long ago. It was like 2012. The big debate was whether they wanted photos in the Twitter stream. And today, again, you're going to roll your eyes, like, oh, hasn't haven't we always had photos in Twitter? And we forget, like, not too long ago, the only way to get a photo in Twitter was Yfrog or TwitPic, which doesn't exist anymore. And there was a time where you know people like Jack Dorsey were very adamant that that is not that is not the core product of Twitter and there shouldn't be photos. It should be a text-based platform. And now, you know, you can't imagine, you know, a Twitter without photos and without Twitter cards and all this other uh, stuff that, that's in them now. And, you know, and in, there's obviously products that influence that, right? Uh, 
Instagram becomes super successful and, you know, ends up, you know, being a very visual platform. So, you know, it needs to keep up and move forward. But it's just, it's, it's amazing to watch you know, those kind of fundamental shifts where it's like, you know, they really, really shape the, the product. And the thing I like most about Twitter is that, and I think a lot, a lot of people in Twitter forget this um, because it's really easy to forget once you're inside because you think, you're building the product and you think that you know it you're the one pushing it forward but we forget that all major innovations to Twitter other than the it being invented itself really came from the user you know they're 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 solely you know a mobile app and they forget that you know somebody on the outside builds that mobile app eight bits and um, you know the hashtag comes from the outside uh, Twitter search comes from a group right here in in DC actually um, early on and so all big major innovations at Twitter happened outside of Twitter and I, I think that to me is the thing I love most about Twitter because it really is the user that will ultimately decide what Twitter is whether Twitter likes it or not. So what processes did you create to lay down the foundation of Twitter's design team? Yeah, so there was um, there was definitely a foundation before I got there. I don't want to. I definitely want to take credit for that. There's um, there was um, at Stop Doug Bowman, who's always been one of my sort of like design uh, idols uh, for a long time. He was there. He was he was probably I think he was there like second or third designer. Uh, pretty early on, but he, 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 I would say laid the foundation, but it was a pretty small team you know, two or three. And mm-hmm. when I got there, it was really about, you know, how do we, how do we grow the team? You know, uh, from you know just a handful to to like eighty, and a lot of people would ask, well, "Why the heck does Twitter 140 characters need 80 designers?" But um, and if you want to know the answer, it's just, there's you know a lot of problems to solve, and so you basically throw one you know designer at, at really big problems like internationalization or revenue or growth. And um, but but how do you how do you really think about recruitment? How do you really think about the culture? How do you think about collaboration? How do you start getting um, all these designers and creatives to be more in sync, um, to have more cohesion among the product, because there were a lot of differentiations um, back then. There still are. You can see remnants of it. But a long time ago, the Android app and the iOS app were like really far removed. You know, I think people would argue that you know, an Android app should feel like you know, Android, because that's the operating system on, and an iOS app should feel like iOS. They, they, they don't need to be one and the same, but there, there needs to be better connection to them. But if anybody's still using the uh, Mac app, Twitter Mac app, like you can see like huge deviations from the product today. The desktop app doesn't, or the desktop website doesn't get a lot of love. So you can see huge deviations there from, from, from like the mobile app or the native uh, interactions or, or, or sort of nom- nomenclatures they use. Um, so it was, it was streamlining a lot of that, like right? getting the visual language down, uh, really understanding, you know, how we use iconography, how we use color, typography. Um, Doug Bowman, you know, really did a big, big piece in getting the rebrand outward. You know, it's really focused on the bird specifically, and then um, you know, bringing in the the typeface Twitter and, and, and putting that throughout the product. So I think that was that was the core. It's just um, more cohesion. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So, so what was your day to day like at Twitter? Yeah, so mine was unique than most people, but I'm was constantly focused on what everybody else was focused on. So I'm looking at like, what is, what is research researching? Why are they researching it? Um, what are they inferring from it? And then, you know, what is, cause some, cause research is a tough one because research, um, sometimes, you know, if you do it poorly, you can go into it, you know, predetermined with what you, what the result is. And then, you know, your research ends up becoming exactly what you thought it was because you kind of geared it that way. Um, but you can also, um, you know, 
infer things. And, and that, that, that's not the goal of research. The goal of research is to present data. And then it is, you know, those executing the data to, to understand how to interpret that data. But oftentimes the researcher will, will infer, interpret on the behalf. And so we need to make sure that there is constant, um, sort of almost playing devil's advocate to really understand, you know, what are we looking at? What is it saying to us? I remember there was this one time where, you know, they, somebody higher up in, in Twitter, uh, didn't like Foursquare for whatever reason. I don't know why. And uh, they just made it their mind uh, that Twitter users don't like Foursquare, right? And so they did a bunch of research to to prove a point. And so, you know, I would argue that, you know, you shouldn't be doing research to to, to prove something you already know. You should be doing research to, to, to figure out, you know, what, what, what is actually accurate. But, um, but they come back with the results. And what do the results tell us? Oh, yeah, uh, Twitter users ignore Foursquare. So the, the results told us exactly what they wanted the results to tell us before they, they did the data. So obviously it was going to say what it was going to say. But when I really looked at it and, you know, as, as a team, we kind of, you know, delve into to the numbers. What we saw is of a bunch of people that they that they had interviewed and they had put through, um, the high percentage of them said uh, blatantly that they ignore Foursquare check-ins, and that was sort of the data that they were using to say that you know Foursquare is irrelevant as it relates to a Twitter timeline at that time. And what was really interesting about that particular data is that what was being missed there is that the understanding of what it is to ignore something. Right? If I tell you that I'm ignoring you, Tyler, what I've just told you is that I've acknowledged your existence. Because to ignore you, to take an action to ignore you, I have to process that you exist in the first place. Right? Mm-hmm. So what we really learned was not only does everyone that they interviewed that said they ignored Foursquare, that one, they knew what Foursquare was. And on the web, like that's a big deal, right? Like, 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 you know, as big as important as Twitter thought it was, turns out that all of these people knew what a Foursquare was, they knew what a check-in was. But to say that they ignored it means that they actually saw it, they consumed it, they processed it, and they weren't doing that with a lot of other tweets. They weren't seeing a lot of articles that were being shared or a lot of uh, photos that were being processed or links that were in those tweets, but they saw the Foursquare check-in. And then they made this, this cognitive like understanding that they actually went out of their way to ignore it, and that's a powerful thing. And so what we really understand is what we understood was the way in which we present Foursquare check-ins is wrong. Right, like that's the part that was that was it, it was actually us. We were actually the flaw, not Foursquare. Right, there, there was data there, mm-hmm. and we weren't we weren't um, doing it very well. We weren't doing Geo very well. And Twitter still to this day doesn't do Geo very well. You know, as good as say a Foursquare or a Swarm does. So that that kind of stuff was pretty fascinating. That's awesome. Sounds like an amazing time. So you're currently the co-founder and CEO of Invite. So for those who might not know, what is Invite, and what motivated you to start it? Yeah. So when um. When I decided to to leave Twitter, I got this opportunity to work at the White House, which was brought me back to D.C. and it was kind of like an opportunity of a lifetime. So I jumped at that. I kind of missed D.C. It's you know where I was from, and I wanted to you know come back. Um, and most of my uh, old team you know was was back in D.C. and so I wanted to take a stab at the product side of it, uh, start my own product and. I think like a lot of people, I mentioned this earlier, I have a lot of ideas, um, a lot of thoughts on sort of what I could build. You know, there's probably at least 10 different ideas that I think are, you know, are, are pretty good ideas that the world would, might want if I could do it right or some team could do it right. And Invite was this one that had bothered me for a long time because we had just, we'd always been community-centric team and we had always thrown events, we'd participated in events, we'd gone to a lot of events, you know, we were constant learners, so we're going to conferences, we're registering for those conferences. And as organizers of them, we just always hated what was out there. Like I, like I never loved, for a long time we had upcoming.org from, that Yahoo bought and then shut down, so we lost that and it was like, it was, it was, it was 
good, but it was like just good enough. And then the Facebook events was never quite there because not everyone uses Facebook and it wasn't always, you know, the right platform. And then there was Meetup, which like was never fantastic. Um, and then there was Eventbrite that came along and it was like, all right, this is, this is, this is less shitty than everything else. <laughs> so let's just, let's just all agree to use Eventbrite. It, 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 it does, it's nothing special. But it, it, it did a good job of removing all the horrible that some of the other people had done. So it's like, all right, this is, this is pretty basic, pretty streamlined, you know, there's no bells and whistles, at least from the attendee side. But yeah, let's go for it. And as a designer, like, you know, I wasn't super offended because there really was no design to an Eventbrite. So, you know, it wasn't a big problem that I couldn't get my design on it as long as they weren't forcing theirs on me, like, say, a meetup. So, um, so there we were. And I just always assumed the world was going to fix this problem and you know here we were you know uh, almost a decade later and here we you know still the top contenders for throwing a quick meetup or something like that is meetup in, in Eventbrite and no one's come along and there's been a few like attendee and um, uh, there, there's some newer ones now like Splash That but nothing was great and in, 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 so what we thought was okay we've had this idea for a long time we actually built a prototype in 2008 um, called Envite. We, we, that's when we registered the domain name and got the Twitter handle. And so it, it's an idea we've been sitting on for a very long time. It's when we first designed the, the mark. Um, and it just always sat there like on a shelf collecting dust. But the idea was, you know, let's just start the, the original, original MVP was we always do a big um, holiday party here in DC. And um, this year we didn't want to use Eventbrite. So we said, let's just build our own. Like how hard could it be? Um, you know, we didn't need a lot of bells and whistles. We didn't need, you know, a, a real application or product because it was just going to be a one-time event. So we're just going to, in the thesis was we were going to let people for the very first time RSVP with social, specifically Twitter. Um, and we thought people would really like that because just RSVPing for stuff is kind of a nightmare. You have to create an account. You have to give me your email address. We're like, no, just one click, press the Twitter button. And we thought, oh, well, you get a lot of cool stuff when you press that Twitter button, specifically the avatar. And we thought, oh, well, that's kind of cool. What if we could pull that avatar back? And what if we could show it to people on the guest list? And what if for the very first time we had a visual guest list? And so we just did that one little thing. And it's like, you know, 400 person holiday party, no big deal. But people like loved it. And that just told us like, hey, there's something here. It's interesting. But again, um, bigger clients come, you know, they generate revenue and the Twitter thing happens. We go to Twitter and it just sits on the shelf and it's just this idea. And I'd always thought like, yeah, you know, I hope someone in the world goes and does this. I hope like, you know, I, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, oh, that was my idea. Like, I, you know, I had that first. It's like, no, like somebody should go make this. And then nobody ever did. So when it was our turn and we were free, we said, hey, you know, let's, let's bring that thing back. Let's, let's dust it off and let's make it into a real product. And so that's what we did, build an MVP, put it out there. The world liked it. And then we went and we raised some money, got a million bucks about a year ago, and then built another you know, team a little bit larger. And now we've just been cranking on it every day. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a beautiful platform. I think we were talking about it right before we hit record that, you know, uh, I've have had a chance to check it out and it looks awesome. And, uh, you know, you guys have done a lot of great work with it. Awesome. Appreciate it. So what's your day-to-day -day role as a CEO there? And, and what have what have been some of the biggest lessons learned over the past two years of building Invite? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my day-to-day -day is it's probably still the same as it's always been when I was you know, running uh, Include and when I was at Twitter. It's, you know, it, it's multiple hats. I'm always designing. Uh, I'm, I'm still developing, but um, I probably only design and develop. What I'll do is, is, is the tasks that I know are really just tedious tasks that don't move the needle in any direction, um, but that somebody has to do. Because what I don't want is, you know, again, if, if, if my whole model is um, find the best talent and create an environment where the best talent can do their best work, asking you to, you know, 
redo the business cards, like, like that's not you doing your best work. Like you, your time can be spent on something much better than that. So if that's something I can do, I still have the design chops where I can, you know, not embarrass us with our business cards. Um, I cannot embarrass us with like a marketing page or a landing page or some, you know, Twitter card that we're putting out for some campaign. So I'll still do all that stuff. Um, but you know, I've always had to wear multiple hats. So I'll always play, you know, recruitment, HR, I'll always play um, business development, sales. So that ends up becoming, I mean, that's the most important factor of my job, right? If I can't find people that generate us revenue, then, you know, we're going to not survive and everyone's going to lose their job. So that's probably the most stressful part because that, that's where, you know, the most lands on me. But, um, but yeah, everything from, from still design to code to, to business development to uh, fundraising, you know, getting, you know, finding more investors, uh, keeping the investors that we have, you know, in the loop and happy and, and then uh, marketing, lots of, lots of marketing still. That's awesome. Yeah, it makes for a busy day for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next for, for Envite and for you guys? Yeah, so for us, you know, we're still pretty early on. So like you had mentioned, you know, two years, um, it's, you know, the, the first year is really just kind of four of us hacking around on some ideas, kind of just building, you know, whatever we want. And it's really January is when we, when we you know, really put it out there as like a real thing to the world. Um, so it's it's come a long way but like it's one of the, so i think the thing the answer to your question the thing i realized that um i never gave enough credit to product people before is because i know how to design and i i i, I can code at least on the front end when i get into a product and i see that there's something that's broken and it's so obviously broken and i it's so broken and it shouldn't be, and it's something where I know even I could fix it, and I could write a few lines of code, and it would be fixed, and I could actually know how to get into Inspector, and like I actually know where the problem is. Like like that frustrates me because it's like you know this is like a big company with lots of money. Like how can they not fix this? This is ridiculous. And I I, I would do that all the time, and I probably still do it. But now I realize now that we're on the other side of it, and we probably have a lot of these bugs. And a lot of our users say the same things about us. Is that um, when I look at it, you know, we have. The, the the story I say is that we have you know 365 things to fix that only take a day to fix right but that means I've got a year of things to fix so and I think we'll always have that so there's always going to be these tiny little intricacies or these tiny little bugs and there's there's also things where they they seem surface level and this is one thing I take for granted on the agency side because the agency side um, we were never on the hook to like maintain something. So we just, we had the, we were really on the concepting prototyping side, which is the, is arguably the most fun side to be because you could just come up with crazy ideas, you could build it and then, you know, conceptually this is how this thing works. But I never had to see it through to scale. You know, we, we, in, in theory, it always scaled. It was always flexible, but um, it's those times when, you know, you're, you're not realizing that you're dependent on something like um, AWS and, you know, you kind of live in this naive world where that never goes down and Amazon never is going to let you down. And then it does. I mean, but, but, you know, they think they're doing it at a time where it's not going to hinder you. So it's like, you know, Sunday at like uh, 3 a.m. and like, you know, no one will ever notice and how many of my users are noticing. But it turns out that one of our biggest customers um, throws international events. And it turns out that on that particular Sunday, they have one of their biggest events of the year in Australia 
which turns out to not be Sunday 3 a.m. at all, but Monday afternoon, and they're flipping out because their site's not up, and I'm thinking, like, there's literally nothing I can do because I'm just waiting for Amazon AWS to come back up, and now I'm flipping. And like, these are these crazy things where it's like, I, you know, we never really had to deal with that because these one weird, one-off, like, just, you know, worst-case scenario where the worst thing happens at the worst possible moment, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you couldn't even have really prepared for this particular situation um happens and then the best thing we can do is just have like amazing customer support and you know ex you know have really good communication and apologize you know as much as we possibly can and assure that you know these things are, are very rare but nobody ever wants to hear that right it's like oh yeah it's so rare that this happens like no if it happened once then like in their minds it's it's totally not rare right it happens it must happen all the time because it happened once to them so so i i think i've become more sympathetic to product people i've become uh, definitely much nicer and friendlier to customer service people because I get it now, right? Like, yeah, because it happened to me. Like, it pro when they say, you know, this never happens, they, they might actually be telling the truth. Yeah, no, that's so true. So what features can we expect to come out to, for Enfight in the, in the remainder of the year? So we're designers and developers. So mm -hmm. we we tend to kind of look at that as like our primary audience, even though it really isn't. But we you know, we, we think, how do we make the development and design community fall in love with Invite. And, and I don't really think it's using invite.com. Um, so we have, you know, an embed API, which lets you basically just put a widget on your on your site. And the one unique thing about it is that you can go through the full life cycle of a registration and checkout process without ever leaving. So you can you can you can register for a conference using in, invite um, and you can stay on your conference site the entire time, which right now is something like Cvent or Eventbrite. They have widgets too, but when you put them on, um, it's kind of superficial. You see the Eventbrite widget, you see your ticket tiers. I select my quantity, I hit next. When I hit next, what does it do? It just it just jumps me off to an Eventbrite page, which um, is you know very like where the heck am I going? What is this? And it's got all the exact same data as was on the event page that you spent a lot of time designing and building, and now I'm on this Eventbrite page, and um, you know all that same stuff's there. But I don't even know if I'm on the same site. I have to repick like my choices again, and then once I even complete all that stuff, there's like this: Hey, you know, you bought a ticket, like you should share this on Twitter. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I should totally share it. And then when I share it, you end up sharing the Eventbrite URL, which is not the really cool branded like perfect yeah. event website that you put together and then when you do share it on like Facebook all what shows up is the image is a big Eventbrite logo and it's like well that's great for Eventbrite but not for me so the the event um, the RSVP like registration um, embed API is a thing that we're constantly pushing forward constantly making it better it's a very difficult thing to do only from the security side because you know we're processing um, transaction information and we're passing your credit card through so we, you know, we've got to be very careful with, like man in the middle attacks and really thinking about like how are we handling that sensitive data but like still never making you leave and keeping the session on an invite there through your site so it's like a lot of crazy things that we've got to do with like old school technology like iframes to make it all work but constantly pushing that forward because we want to get to a point um, where you have just a tremendous amount of flexibility and you can make it look and feel like anything you want. And, you know, it's just a matter of how much effort and time you want to put into it. But to give you that full kind of control. Because what we really want to do, we actually use Stripe. But, you know, for anyone that, 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 builds, that builds tech and has ever had to do, like, e-commerce, Stripe has just been a godsend to the world. Because you can just do so much so quickly. And you can make it do and look like anything you want. We want that same kind of thing for events. So we kind of, you know, mentally we say we want to be the Stripe for events. Where you have, where the development design community can really save once and for all, like, oh. Thank God this is here. Like I can't imagine mm -hmm. using anything else. I can't imagine a world where there wasn't Stripe, and I can't imagine where I had to do anything with commerce before there was Stripe. 
like we, like I, the, the world I think wants that for a lot of things. And I don't know if anyone really like raised their hand, like, Oh my God, I want that for events, but we'll, we'll give it to them. Oh, that's a great way to put it. And even having to, even having um, explored and invite myself and collaborating with you guys on the site, I have to say that the experience has been amazing so far. Cool. Appreciate that. So is there any recommendations on great content that you've, that you've read lately, like a book, video, any blogs? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's a hard one too because I, I feel like sometimes when people ask me for advice, like I, I don't give them what they were hoping to get, which I think is probably the best kind of advice you could get. Because if you just want me, if I want me to just tell you what you want me to tell you, just tell me what you want me to tell you, and I'll say it out of my voice, and then you feel better. But um, I think a lot of people ask me like, "What am I reading?" and they they expect me to say, you know, some or you know, what's my favorite website? And they expect me to say like some design blog or you know, some some Seth Godin book. But my big thing is I. I think where I thrive and where I think a lot of people really should be pushing if they are design centric or really believe in things like user experience design or like just design thinking in general, which I would think everybody from, from sales to engineering, you know, has that mindset. Because, you know, when I say design, just for people listening, you know, I'm not talking about like aesthetic visual design, but I'm talking about like the design of systems and design of architectures, design of like strategy, the design of plans. And so I'm constantly, as a designer of all those things, um, I think the worst thing that I do is um, I get crippled by my own perspective, by my own past. And so it's me who's my greatest enemy because I can't unthink me. So I only see a world in which I've lived and you know I've been around or that I have that has been influenced by other people who try to give me a different perspective, right? So so I, I can see I can I, I can only walk in the shoes of people who I've met, which I think is, is almost as bad as not walking in other people's shoes because you're still, you still limited yourself, right? If I've only ever interacted with people in the United States, then like, yeah, I can say, oh yeah, I can walk in other people's shoes, but only in United States shoes, right? I can't have an international mindset. Um, so I'm constantly looking for like content that changes my perspective, that it flips the world for me, that um, changes my vocabulary, my vernacular, gets me to sort of open my eyes. And I think there's, there, there's, some, there's some things that maybe people have, I, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan. So you know, some of it, like, people don't love like his data or how he gets it. But I think he does a really good job, even if you don't agree with the point, but he does a good job of opening your eyes to see like, oh, there was a, just a different way to think about the problem or a different way to, and even again, I don't even care if, you know, the solution he got to, um, you know, uh, is you don't agree with it or um, you don't like the methods in which he got there. All I like is that there was a different solution because I think a lot of people give a hard time to devil's advocates because that usually sounds like somebody who's um, argumentative or like just doesn't agree or won't get on board. But I think it's always good for somebody to say, you know, hey, here, here's what I believe to be right. And then just for the sake of discussion and the sake of like growing, let's just, let's just take a world where the opposite was true. And let's disprove that first. And then if we can't actually disprove it, then yeah, the original point was flawed. Um, but if we can disprove it, then not only did we revalidate validate the original thinking, which you could say is a waste of time because why don't we just agree with you to begin with, but I would, I would garner the fact that um, we probably got a lot of insights and a lot of um, clarity and perspective around the thinking that went through to disprove what we already knew to be wrong. Um, so, so I, I like things like Freakonomics and, and, and Gladwell Tipping Point. Like, uh, he's got this new one. It's not that new. Maybe it was like a year ago, but it's called, um, David and Goliath. And that one's really, really good. Um, but he's, he's always one where every time he puts something out, I, again, I don't have to love what he's writing, but he, he makes my brain go like, oh yeah, that's good. I like the way he thought about that. <laughs> that's awesome. It, it is a good book. And, uh, I do, I do enjoy a good, uh, good story from Malcolm Gladwell. 
So do you have any last thoughts or personal models uh, that you live by and you think others should know about? Um, yeah, I've got a few personal models. Um, regrets are for tomorrow is a big one. I think, we, I think sometimes we spend too much time thinking about like what if and you know, I, I think we, we, we over regret things before we just get into them and I think we can just deal with that, you know, like I said, tomorrow. Um, a big one on our team is if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Um, you know, I think it kind of goes with events, so it's, you know, it, it's nice that way. Um, you know, classic is go big or go home. Um, you know, for us, I think it's just, we, we always say just jump. Um, we spend way too much time overthinking things, over talking things, and it's got, it gets us into trouble, certainly, but I think we, we win uh, more than we lose, and I think that's the important part, and when that stops being true, I'll probably stop giving that advice, but right now it's worked out for us, and I don't know if that's some combination of luck or, 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 or what is it, but, um, but yeah, just, just, just saying, because me and my business partner, Alex, when we had the first company, and so he's also my business partner at this company, too, so we've been together working together for 10 years now. So, you know, he's, he's someone I, I trust. But in the beginning, we had no idea what we're doing. I mean, we have no idea what we're doing now, but we would, um, there was this restaurant in D.C. near where he lived in Arlington. It was called Champs. And it's like a sports bar. And I think the only, it was terrible food, terrible beers, but I think the only reason we went there was happy hour and it was close to where he lived. But we would, whenever we had a big decision, like, you know, hiring our first employee or selling the company, we'd always go there. Uh, even after he had moved and it wasn't convenient for us, we'd still just go there. And the same thing always happened. We'd sit there, we'd order a few beers, we'd drink, and we'd discuss it in excess. And two or three hours later, we'd come to no conclusion and we'd order one more drink. And we said, by the time we got to the bottom of this, we're going to say, just fuck it. And we're just going to pick one. And, you know, every time we just said, we drank it, got to the bottom, said, fuck it, we're doing A. It's like, oh, let's do it. We're in. And, um, and we have no idea if it's going to work or not. But I think the important part is it doesn't really matter if it's going to work or not. We know through our experience that we're the type of people that, that I love this saying, actually, I, I didn't come up with this, but I do love it. You don't, you never lose. You either win or you learn. And I think that's, that's the way I look at these kind of like just fuck it moments, like just, just go at it because um, we're, ne we're never going to lose, right? Um, we're either going to become stronger because we lost and we, we, we become smarter or we actually just won and we took a really good gamble. And so when I look back at it, I, I tell these stories, even, even just with you guys just now, of all these you know um, big moments where we're ahead of the curve. But there's probably four times as many moments in which we weren't ahead of the curve where we're backing something like HTML2 or um, – yeah, XHTML2 before HTML5 and wasting our time on like Expression Engine 2.0, even though it ends up becoming a big flop. And so, um, you know, we spend a lot of our time um, probably failing at things, but I think we move on from them so fast and we learn from them so quickly that we, we forget about them. And obviously, you know, we don't, we don't harp on so many of those kind of things. So, so they're easy to like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's some great advice. Uh, Martin, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight. It was really amazing to have you on the show and hear you hear your story. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It looks like yeah, I kept it right under an hour, so I hope you got a lot of editing to do probably, but uh, appreciate the time. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Hack to Start, and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.